Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the greatest of all privileges, and that is to share your word. Father, to proclaim your word in the way we live, to proclaim it in relationships, to proclaim it in class settings and church settings and personal settings, counseling, on the phone, at the gas station. Father, thank you for this greatest of all privileges that you have given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. And Father, this morning as we have come together to hear from you, Father, we pray that we will not only hear from you, but experience you. Experience you as only you can do in such a transforming and empowering way. And so, Father, this morning we confess our weakness, our need for the work and the ministry, the intervention of the Holy Spirit. In me, who will speak, and in all of us, who will hear. Father, may this morning be another day of rejoicing in your presence. And may it continue day after day as the fruit of that rejoicing, the fruit of that receiving, will work out in a glorious testimony so that all the world may know what the Apostle says in Philippians, that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, there was a young man who was attending military school And when he would return from school, he would attend the church where the family was located, where they worshipped. And there was in that church congregation a young lady that he saw in the congregation that he saw in class settings. And then there was a fellowship of all the youth one evening. And during the fellowship, this young man's eye fell upon that young girl. And there was something about her. about the way she acted, about her smile, 
about her disposition, about her care, about the gentleness of her voice, which this young man didn't have a gentle voice. And for several years, through various circumstances, their paths did not continue. But then several years later, the opportunity of coming into relationship with this now, 20-some-odd-year-old lady, this young man sprang to the opportunity. And they began to go with one another. And everything about what he was doing, he was teaching. He was a teacher. And everything about what he did and all of his thinking and planning and preoccupation, his hopes and his goals, were how to further the relationship. You see, because this young lady had won the devotion of this man's heart and affected his walk. And even after 41 years of marriage, this old man is still taken with this young lady. You see, there's something about devotion. There's something about the capturing of a heart. that produces a way of life. There was something in that young lady that began to work in the heart of that man. And he began to contrive, even going out at night, at nine o'clock at night, when we used to have telephone booths on the corner, <laughs> at Claiborne and Nashville, and calling her and talking to her until his family relented to get him a telephone in the house because they thought he would get killed out there. But he didn't care. He wanted to talk to her. And talking to her was more important than even the perception of his safety. Because he 
His heart had been won by her. He was devoted. And he remains devoted. Devotion. What comes to your mind when we talk about devotion? Does this kind of thing come to your mind when you talk about devotion? This is what I think of when I think of devotion. That winning of a heart. So that as a heart issue, as a matter of motivation, as a matter of attitude, as a matter of necessity, the object of the devotion becomes the driving force and reason and goal of the life. What do you think of when you hear the word devotion? Do you think of any particular person? I would think that if I asked how many of you have a particular person or persons in mind When we say devotion, most of us, hopefully all of us, would be able to raise our hand and say, that person, those people. And how do we respond? You see, we respond in like manner, don't we? Where the two hearts, if you would, come together come together in such a way that they will beat as one. And where the walk of these two hearts and the lives of these two hearts will begin to take on not a singularity, but a unity. So that when you look at one or the other, you should see both in either one. Devotion. When we look at the first several verses of the 12th chapter of John, Typical of all the verses in the Bible, there are about 7,000 things that need to be said about any particular passage. This morning, just want to look at the first three verses and consider this issue. This primary way of how God has made us. This issue of devotion, you see, because... This is the way we have been made. We have been created to need to have hearts devoted to something outside 
and better and greater than ourselves. God has created us this way. This is why all of us are the same. This is why we can all relate to these kinds of circumstances and these kinds of stories. We all relate. We're all there because we have all experienced it to some degree or another. And in this, you see the great purpose of God. Wooing and winning us into himself. Causing us to walk with him and to be with him in such a way that our hearts have been captured and overwhelmed by his goodness. So much so that in our devotion, we are taking on by his spirit in us. The very character, the very nature, the very ways of this one who has called us to be devoted to him. And I believe that is something of what we see in John chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. And John, I think, is showing us at least three things about devotion, three results of devotion. I believe he's showing us a testimony of resurrection life. I believe he's showing us the activity of devotion in serving. And then the posture of devotion in sitting, which results in the extravagance of devotion in just giving. I believe that's what the Lord is showing us here. So let's look at these verses. Let's look at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Now this is several months after Lazarus has been raised. There's a lot of other material in the other Gospels that can be filled in. Remember Zacchaeus climbing the sycamore tree and other instances. And he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. So what's the occasion? The occasion is a thank you dinner for Jesus. A thank you for, up to that point, the greatest demonstration of the power of God in raising a man who had been dead and buried four days. A man whose body was already Beginning to putrefy. It stinks, they said. Don't open the grave because he stinketh. At least is what King James says. He stinketh. Those of you who love King James should be excited about that quote. And in the verse, we already introduce... 
to one of the recipients of the goodness and mercy and ministry of God through Jesus Christ. And his name is Lazarus. You see, because if we're not careful, we'll read these verses and skip over everyone except for one person. And yes, there is one person who is specified by the Lord. And we'll get to that in a moment. Lazarus is there. He's at the table. In fact, he is the center of occasion, the center of interest. Now, let's just face it. Someone you know died. They really did die. And then several days later, at the funeral, some strange-looking man walks in, puts his hand on the coffin, and he says, get up, and the man comes to life. Now, the probability is everybody else dies on that occasion, right? All of us, boom. And you're invited to a meal to see him. Now, there are going to be two people you got to see. I just got to see these two people. Whom do you have to see? You have to see the man who did the raising. And you want to see the man who is raised. And so very quickly about Lazarus. I believe him just being there, if you would, at the table is a living demonstration, a living testimony of the power of what devotion to Jesus can do. You see, devotion to Jesus, to Him, to Him Himself. What it can do. You see, I was and still am devoted to Jean Clement. It's her maiden name. I wasn't devoted to where she lived. I wasn't devoted to the shoes she wore. I don't know what she wore. Wives, it's not an issue with men. What did I wear yesterday? You had clothes on? I mean, I mean, what do I eat? Let's not make the devotion the trappings of life. Let's make our devotion to one another the life, him or herself. Amen? Amen. It's not nearly important as what I wore, but do you have my heart? Now, of course, you would say if you do, you would know what I wear, but men don't do well with that. Thank you. So Lazarus is devoted to Jesus. And he experiences this powerful resurrection life. Continuing in verse 2. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Verse 2. Now you see, did you get it or did you miss it? What verse 2 just said. Did you get it or did you miss it? What did Martha do? Okay. There's a dinner. It's at the house of Simon the leper, which you find in Mark 14, Matthew 26. You can go to the other passages. 
she's serving. Well, that's normal. That's what women are supposed to do. It's not unusual. When there's a dinner, the women are in the kitchen doing the work. So what? Why in the world would the Holy Spirit say she served? Big deal. Well, turn to chapter 10 of Luke. Turn to chapter 10 of Luke. Because you see, Martha served with an attitude until her heart was touched by the love of God. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 34 through 40. Now, Luke chapter 10. As they went on their way, we're talking about Jesus and the disciples. Jesus entered a village, Bethany, remember? And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now, we don't know whether this is the first time or not. The probability is he's been in the house in the area before. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I'm hot. I'm tired. I'm, I'm, you know, doing all this work. I've got all the pots and pans and the stove is doing this and the oven is doing that and the microwave won't work. And the cookies are about the, you know, and the, and the steak isn't being done. Why don't you get her in here and get her to help me? She's just sitting around doing nothing. Because you see, service is work for me. It's something I have to do. It's a duty because I'm a woman and it's my place. You see, what was the difference between then and John chapter 12? Then in Luke 10, what is Martha doing? She is being distracted with her serving. It's a chore. It's a task. It's an obligation. It's what I got to do. It's something that I, I'm not doing with joy. I, I just know that if I don't do it, the meal's going to go flop. I'm going to be in trouble and people are going to complain. It's just what I do. You know, it's just part of life. But what was happening in John chapter 12? What does the Holy Spirit say? She served. Where's the attitude? Where is it? It's not there. Where's the obligatory obligation, the obligatoriness of her duty? Where is it? What happened? Where to go? What was the difference? You see, her service changed from just mere duty to great delight. Do, Do you see the difference? If we're not careful, we'll just, Martha served and Lazarus was there. They're all around the table. And then we come to the crescendo Mary. 
But we have to take our time going through the Word of God because everything in the passage is there for a purpose. Everything in the passage is there to reveal something about God. And what is this about Martha that shows us something about God? She had experienced the ministry and the care and the kindness and the goodness of a man. A man who in that society would have said, woman, you get in the kitchen and you just do your work, keep your mouth shut, and that's what you do. You feed us. We're in charge. We're the men. You're lower than we are. You see, you're not that important. But how many of us know that those whom the world considers trash are God's treasures? From trash to treasure. From trash to treasure. How many of us were trash at one time, but now have been made treasure? You see, she's, she's a kitchen hand. That's what she's supposed to be in that society. You see, some of you thought I was putting women down in the beginning. This is the attitude. Even today, even in the church, perhaps. What happened? She met a man who considered her to be important. Who touched her life and who ministered to her. And you remember when we talked in John chapter 11, who met her greatest need, not by doing something, but by being someone for her and with her. When Jesus said, I'll raise your brother, your brother's going to live. She said, oh, I know he'll live on the last day. I know the theology. And Jesus cuts in. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Me. Her whole life. Now was becoming captured by this man. And his love and his compassion and his kindness was drawing out of her the poison of her sin. How many of you remember years ago, perhaps even today, we would put a compost. I think that's what they call them. Those, those big old things on boils and everything to draw out the poison. Isn't that what they call nurses? Compress? Compost is something else, I think. Well, I'm liable to say anything. It's okay. For those of you who are in Boston, go, go, go order some compost. Maybe that's, you know, whatever. I mean, anybody speaks with those kinds of accents. And why did you put that on a boil? Because, you see, it drew the poison out. And it was the love of God. It was the kindness of this man, a man who cared about her for her. Not to manipulate her, not for ulterior motives, but cared about her for her. And that care began to pull out the poison. 
How do I know that? How do we know that? You see, Jesus had won the devotion of her heart. And as a result, she served him well who had served her so well. Colossians 3.24, Paul has been saying to the slaves, obey your masters, obey them. And then in 3.24 of Colossians, he said, why to do this? Why? Because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Has Jesus himself... And there is the whole issue of reward. But you see, he is our great reward. And with him comes all the pleasures of heaven and joys forevermore and all the blessings of life. But they come because he, because of who he is. And they come to us because he becomes Himself, personally, the object of our devotion, the object of our heart's desire, the goal of our life. So that anything and everything and every one of life begins to find the context within our devotion to Him. Not that He becomes another part of our devotion, another thing Or another person to whom we are devoted. But he himself becomes the literal, overwhelming, complete devotion of everything about our life. Therefore, everything else about our lives finds its context within devotion to him. And you see, it frees us. And it motivates us. And it empowers us to do what Martha did. She served. On that day of judgment, when we, the believers in Jesus Christ, stand before this one who has served us with everything he had, what will he say about our service to him and to his family? You see, my job keeps me so busy. Hmm. It's so far away. I have all my kids. You see, you don't understand the complexities of my life. I I, I just don't feel that that's what I want to do. Whatever the issue is. You see, because a devoted heart, there were obstacles in getting to talk to Gene. But I can guarantee you one thing. I overcame them all because I had a devotion that was greater than any obstacle. Is that how we are with our service to the Lord? Oh, there are obstacles. The devil's going to put 10,826 obstacles a day in your path. But you know what overcomes them? The fire. 
the power of a devoted heart to God himself. There's no activity in hell itself that can overcome that kind of power. How are we doing in our service to the Lord? In our service to the church? You know how to serve me the best? Serve my family. Serve my wife, my daughter, and my four great-grandchildren. My four great, meaning not great-grandchildren, my four monsters, my four grandchildren. Now, some people think I'm overly devoted to them <clears throat> on any thought like that. I look for more ways to be more devoted to them and to my daughter and to my wife. There is no such thing as over-devotion to my family. And there is no such thing, obviously, as over-devotion to the Lord of glory. I look for opportunities to serve them. To go out of my way. I really do. I know you may not believe this, but I do. To go out of my way. To help them to do whatever. Is this how we are as a church? You know how many needs there are in this church? <laughs> there are so many. And when we look at the church, we find about... 25% maybe are really the service, the Mothas. You see, because what happens is devotion occurs when we are experiencing the goodness and love of God. But then devotion is encouraged and developed as we respond devotionally. And as we respond that way, that devotion grows. Do you want to have a closer walk with the Lord? Do you? Anybody here want to have a closer walk, greater experiences with God? Serving. Serving. Serve the church. It's the body of Christ. In Matthew, he says, as often as you have done it unto the least of one of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's life also captured by this man. How does her devotion work out? What does it look like? You see, it's not an either or. It's a combination of the three. Please don't take this as a testimony devotion, a serving devotion, and a sitting devotion. We're talking about just three aspects of a whole. One-third of the pie, one-third of the pie, and one-third of the pie. Do you ever notice Mary's posture? When you look at the Word of God in relation to Mary, have you noticed her posture? I just read from Luke chapter 10. What does it say? It says, Martha was in the kitchen. 
hitting the pots and pans. And speaking in hopefully unknown comments. Known to her, but known hopefully not to anybody else. Anybody ever do that? But where is Martha? In chapter 10 of Luke, where is Martha? Did you see it? Where is Martha? But Martha what is where? I'm sorry. Where, oh, thank you very much. Where is Mary? Where is she? She's at Jesus' feet. John chapter 11. Remember John 11? Jesus comes in. Martha meets him. They have an exchange. And then Martha goes to get Mary. And Mary runs up to Jesus. And the first thing she does is what? In verse 32. What does it say? 11.32 says what? And Mary fell at his feet. Then in John chapter 12, verse 3, where is Mary? She's again where? At the feet of Jesus. You see, our greatest position in life is at the feet of Jesus. The greatest virtue in life is humility. Remember in John, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins the Beatitudes, that description of what the church life is to look like. Remember that? And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, what does it say? Come on, some of you Bible students, what does John, uh, Matthew 5, 3 say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It doesn't mean not to have a lot of cash in your pocket. Poor in spirit means those who are needy of God in need and who know it and who confess it and who place themselves at the disposition of God, who place themselves at the feet of Jesus. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everything else through verse 12 of those Beatitudes is a blessed aspect of being a part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's first you're in the kingdom of heaven. And then as a result of having that personal relationship with God in Christ, then all the blessings flow through that. And are the result of that. Where's Mary? She's at Jesus' feet. And in order to see Jesus correctly, in order to relate to him in a way that exemplifies his true character and his true worth and his true ministry, She has to look up to him. You see, she has to look up to him. Yes, even as believers, we still must be at the feet of Jesus. And our posture must be humility. And our activity must be looking up. You see, if we have had our hearts won by the love of God... The greater our experience of God's presence in us, 
in one way, the higher we go, but in another way, the lower we go. Does that make sense to you? You see, Mary has received so much love. So much love. And what is the result of her sitting at the feet of Jesus? Do you remember Matthew eleven twenty eight? How many of you have heard of that verse before? Did you look at the plaque outside? When you come in the main stairway, when you're coming up on the right, there's a plaque. And it says what? Matthew eleven twenty eight dash thirty. Isn't that right? I mean, doesn't that what is it? And what does it say? Come unto me. Look what it says. Didn't say, come on and do something. It says, come to me. All ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where? At my feet. You're going to sit. You remember the crowds, even in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, command them to what? Sit. Are we learning to sit? Are we learning to enjoy the presence of God? Or are we so fidgety with all of our gadgets and technology and requirements of life that we are missing the principal reason for our having been created, which is oneness with our God? Sit. Come and set a spell. Sit down. Relax. Rest. I dare say that in this room, I don't know how many are here in this room, 600, let's say, 650. I will bet if there's 650 people in here, there are 10,000 needs. How many of you have more than one need? And yet, we're scampering around to try to figure out how to meet these through activities in our natural abilities and steam. And yet there's only one. There's only one who can meet our needs. What does he say again? Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Learn. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart. See, Mary sits at his feet and she drinks in the beauty and the majesty and the goodness and the mercy and the revelation of who he is. What does it do in her heart? What it does in her heart is to cause her to begin to realize experientially. Intellectually, but by experience. That the things that she treasured on earth. My house. My clothes. My looks. My friends. My job. Men and women, doesn't matter. 
she began to realize that, you know something? There's something a whole lot more of a treasure than this stuff. Remember what Matthew 6 says about a treasure? How many of you remember what that says? Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Why? Because you see, our pleasure is in our treasure. How many of you know that your treasure, whatever it is, brings you pleasure? Come on. Right? Thank you. Your treasure brings you pleasure. Look at it and feel good about it. You know, I got to watch the Lord of the Rings at uh, Shefferstein's house and his son, Scott. We would show it. He would show it to me. And every five minutes, he would stop it and explain what was happening. (laughs) Well, it's okay. And what's the guy's name? Gimli? Is that the little... Who? Gollum? Y'all watched this a lot, didn't you? You remember Gollum? Once he got his hand on this, look at the pledge. But that's how we are. And look, what are you going over? When the stock market goes down, when the relationship goes sour, when you spill coffee all over that new, I know how it is. I'm like everybody else. I have to battle these things like you do. What happens in Mary? She finds that this man is the pearl of greatest price, the treasure in the field. So you know what she does? She takes a pound of nard. Some kind of ointment, some kind of stuff that smells good. And actually, when you look at all of it, she is anointing the whole body of Jesus, although John is accentuating the feet where Matthew accentuates the head. You know, okay. She's she's pouring this stuff. This is lavish. A denarii is worth 300 denarii. So what? A denarii was a laborer's day wage. So if a laborer makes, what, 10 bucks an hour, let's say, eight hours a day? Is that okay? A day later? That's (laughs) $24,000. That ain't bad. And she says... It's nothing. It's not nothing because I am rich. No, it's nothing because he is so much greater. Her greatest treasure, she says, take it. Because if I withhold it, it's going to become a canker worm in me and rot it. And it's going to control me. You see, it's not that you have treasure. It's does the treasure have you. You can have great riches and have No binding of that treasure in your life. Well, you can have great poverty and be bound by the desire to have treasure. The issue isn't treasure. The issue is heart. Is Jesus our treasure? I'm going to say something that some of you are not going to like. There he goes again. Yes, you're right, because that's where God goes. Look at your pocketbook and look at your checkbook. And determine where your treasure is. How much is your heart being captured by the Lord? Oh, a lot. I give five bucks a week to that church. 
Are you being captured? Are you trusting him? Mary said, there ain't nothing in my life more important than this man himself. Now, we can say that doctrinally and in this setting. But let there come an opportunity for something that we value to be touched or asked of us. Then we begin to be very defensive and very, what word I want, explaining things. Uh, say it again. Rationalizing. I like you on the front row. <laughs> Matt Mason is good up here, even though he's not up here. Are we sitting at the feet of Jesus? You see, if we are devoted to Jesus... When I talked about this young man who was devoted to this young lady. This young man found that there were things that this lady liked and things she wanted where she wanted to go and do that the young man was like in his natural life. How many of you men know that this is what she wants to do? You know what? My natural inclination and disposition was, no. You do what? You want to go where? But as my heart was being captured, my devotion was wanting to cooperate with her devotion. What is Jesus' devotion? John chapter 2, verse 17. That's Jesus' devotion. John chapter 2, verse 17. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, because I know all of you know it. What's Jesus' devotion? What is he devoted to? You see, if we're devoted to him, we're going to be devoted to what he is devoted to. Remember in John chapter 2, Jesus says, turn the wine into water. How many of you are listening? <laughs> Turning the water into wine. <laughs> See, some of you said, hey, yeah, that's okay. I remember that story. I saw the movie. And then after that, he leaves Cain of Galilee. He goes on to where? Jerusalem in the temple. And he walks into the temple and he sees his father's house being defiled, filled with religious people who had no devotion to him. But going through all the activities of religion. And this man began to steam. And he took a rope. And he knotted it up. And he stood up. Erect and strong. This one any old little old skinny little wimpy man. This was a man's man. He'd walk, work with carpentry his whole life. This guy's got arms and a chest on him. And he starts marching through the halls of that temple in the outer courts where they were giving and selling of the merchandise. 
And he started going through there and turning this table over, knocking that one over, and whipping people. And I can imagine that all the people there were terrified of what? Of a man? No. Of the wrath and the fury of a God who was clearing out his house. And why did he do it? John 2.17 says, Zeal for thy house hath consumed me. What is Jesus' zeal? For us. For us. You are Jesus' zeal. Because in us is the very glory and honor and vindication and revelation and outworking of who God is and how He is. You see, we to God are the greatest treasure in all creation the ones for whom His Son died and rose again in order to have with Him forevermore. We are the greatest treasure to God in Jesus Christ. Zeal for thy house. Is this where you are? Is serving the needs of the church, the body of Christ, service again? Is this what our devotion leads us to? Has this man captured our affections? I have a lot more to say, but I want to just talk about this one thing. Hebrews 5.8 says, Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. You remember in Hebrews 2.9, for a little while he became lower than the angels. He came from glory to live among us. And he learned obedience through the things he suffered. As a perfect man in a as a perfect man living in a fallen world, surrounded by imperfect men, Jesus had to learn the practice of patience, of kindness, of service, of submission, of being educated, of resisting temptation. He had to learn these things. You say, Well, so what? So do we all. But you see, Jesus came to it from a different perspective. We come to it within the context of fallenness. He came to it within the context of perfection. From the realm of perfection without any limitation into a corrupt and limited world. What a radical and intense experience. Can you imagine what that felt like? To come from a perfectly clean house and to live in the dregs of society, in the filth of life. You see, he who had known and understood all things completely, having to learn and understand them all over again as a man. He who was sinless, having to learn to overcome temptation. He who was limitless, having to experience limitations. He who was all-powerful, experiencing weaknesses. He who lived in the perfection of heaven, having to live in a fallen world among fallen people. He who had received and given perfect love, experiencing the hatred of sinners against him. 
And most of all, he who knew unbroken and perfect fellowship with his father, having to undergo the father's wrath on the cross for our sin. So much so that he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? You see, is it any wonder that when we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without any sin. Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace. He sits on the throne. To Him, devotion. That we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. What effect does His Devotion to us have upon our devotion to him. You see, because we've been, we've been won by his devotion to us. What effect does it have? John 14, 15. If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will serve. You will testify. You will sit. You will give. You will do it with all joy because of who I am to you and in you. This is the way you will do it. Before the service this morning, I was handed this as a word that someone had for the church. And I wanted to wait until this point to read it. Because this person did not know where we were going this morning. Just felt impressed by the Holy Spirit. He said to, to give this. A few weeks ago, there was an altar call for those who desired to know the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives in a greater way. I believe the Lord desires to encourage those of, who may have become frustrated in that pursuit in a very specific way. First, the Lord would exhort you to continue in your pursuit of Him. This person didn't know I would be talking this morning, let alone what I'd be talking about. He desires for each of you to know His presence through the work of the Holy Spirit in a personal and powerful way. He's not resisting you. Rather, He welcomes you and longs to fill you with everything necessary for life and for godliness. He's saying, come on. As you pursue Him, I believe the Lord wants you to dwell on a very specific, glorious, on his very specific, glorious nature. That being his perfect love. I'm not going to even read you what I have in my notes. I'm going to read you what God has in these notes. Throw my notes away for these notes. So this is what Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Paul, Peter, John etc., etc., and us 
to an increasing degree. As you pursue him, the Lord wants you to dwell on a specific of his glorious nature, of being his perfect love. His love that is steadfast and long-suffering and does not retain anger forever. His love that has poured into our hearts. His love that forgives our iniquity and blots out our transgressions. His love that allows us access to his throne of grace and allows us to cry from our distress, Abba, Father. His love that looked upon our wickedness and declared us to be his beloved children. His love that makes us more than conquerors. His love that holds us so tight that we shall never be separated from it regardless of circumstance or danger. His love that allows us to love one another and strive together for his purposes. His love that takes away our differences and makes us one holy family able to live for his glory. His love that chastens us and brings us from wandering back to his side. His love that comforts us. Gives us hope through grace and bestows joy unspeakable and full of glory. His love that casts out fear. His love that overcame the ravages of storm and flood and brought us back to this place. His love which is so rich in mercy and grace that when he looked out over the expanses of time and saw the condition of our fallen and sin-filled hearts saw our desire to live apart from him, saw our backs turned against him in rebellion, and saw our march toward an eternal destination of hell, did not burn in his anger toward us, but shouted, I will show mercy and I will show grace. His love that while we were yet sinners sent his own son to die on the cross and shed his own blood that we that we might be forever redeemed. And his love that on a day already known to him will cause him to gather us before himself where we will rejoice in his love for all eternity. Be not discouraged, but continue in your desire to know more greatly the Holy Spirit of God, to know Jesus. Dwell on this perfect love Pursue his love. And through his love, you will find the sweet and abiding presence, the indwelling power, and the complete provision that you seek. Why be devoted to him? Because he's 1,000% devoted to us. Amen. What a savior. What a savior. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow.
Yeah.